The following message is copyrighted by Westminster Theological Seminary. Duplication, distribution, or other use of all or any part of this message is not permitted without prior written consent. Please direct your inquiries to communications at wts.edu. For all other information, please visit the main website at www.wts.edu. Good morning. It's good to be back here with you this morning. Last night we were looking at the 16th century. We're going to advance a little bit in history and look at the 19th and 20th century this morning. And I've kind of changed the title a little bit. If you notice on the uh, brochure here, the title originally was J. Gresham Machen and the Battle for Biblical Authority. I'm going to throw one more name in on the title. And the new title is B.B. Warfield, J. Gresham Machen and the Battle for Biblical Authority. And you'll see why I'm doing that as we proceed this morning with our time together. Let me begin with a word of prayer. Let's pray together. Father, again, we come before you recognizing that you are our creator, that we are your creatures, that we owe you, Father, our allegiance, that we owe you, our creator, Father, all obedience. And we pray, Father, this morning that as we continue to reflect on the history of your church, as we continue to reflect on your word, that you would teach us even more to be obedient, to love you, to understand that our life, again, is found in Christ. Father, bless our time this morning. Continue to strengthen your church here and around the world. We pray this in and through Jesus Christ. Amen. The historian Bradley Longfield writes, On Sunday morning, 21st of May, 1922, Harry Emerson Fosdick mounted the pulpit of the First Presbyterian Church in the city of New York to preach the most famous sermon of his career, entitled, Shall the Fundamentalists Win? Described by Fosdick as a plea for goodwill, The sermon fell like a bombshell on the Presbyterian church and set in motion a series of explosions that would rock the church into well into the next decade. Fosdick, a liberal Baptist preaching by special arrangement from the Presbytery of New York, calling for toleration in the midst of the struggles and battles in the Presbyterian church. Clarence Edward McCartney, prominent preacher and pastor of the Arch Street Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, led a response to Fosdick. He answered Fosdick with his own sermon entitled, Shall Unbelief Win? Fosdick wanted toleration for liberal interpretations of doctrines like the virgin birth and the inspiration of Scripture. This battle was set within the wider context of the cultural crises of the early 20th century and the American church, not just the Presbyterians, but other denominations as well, embroiled in what historians now describe as the modernist fundamentalist controversy. 
Modernists describing progressives within the church. Fundamentalists describing those who were conservative. Fighting within the church, but not just the church, but in the theological institutions attached to the various denominations. And nowhere was this more evident than in the Presbyterian Church and the denomination seminaries like Union Theological Seminary in New York and Princeton Theological Seminary in Princeton, New Jersey. Now, I would submit that one of the major issues that sparked all of this debate was the question of the authority of Scripture. And let me add one more historical point to all of this. The 1920s, that which was going on in the Presbyterian Church was not marginalized to little side articles that you might find in Christianity today about what happens in our various denominations. Presbyterian Church was a central cultural and societal figure within American culture at the time. So much so that events that were going on in the church as well as in their seminaries, Union and Princeton, that was front page news in the New York Times. This was something that all America was watching, observing, witnessing at that time. Now, how did this battle emerge? Where did it come from historically? This is what I would like us to explore a bit today and to see how that emerged, see how it developed and to see once again what we can learn from the various struggles of Christians in the 19th and 20th century this morning. Now, where did it begin? I think for us to understand the roots of that struggle, we must again go back in history a little further back to the 18th century. Now, last night I was talking about the Reformation, which would be the 16th century. Then I talked about the Westminster Divines, which was the 17th century. And I think that if you went back into the 16th and 17th century in Europe, you would find a very different worldview than what emerged in the 18th century. Now, what do I mean by a different worldview? In the 16th and 17th century, Europeans and North Americans, as the colonies were being established by the 17th century in New England, Europeans and New Englanders had a worldview in which they accepted and recognized that God was their creator, that God had created the world, and that God had given to them in the world various structures, like governments, like the church. All of this under a, if I could describe it this way, theistic worldview, a worldview that still had God as the center, that believed everything that human beings know, it comes from God, comes from his word comes from the world that he created and placed us in. All of this given to us, created by Almighty God. And everything that we know and everything that we believe, the Europeans at that time thought and believed, yes, it comes from God. And it's not just a Protestant worldview. I would say this is a Roman Catholic worldview as well. Roman Catholics at the time would have recognized that God has created all things. And there was a common mindset in that way. A common theistic mindset. But by the 18th century, Europe was shifting from this mindset. Philosophers and scientists were beginning to explore different ideas and thoughts, trying to make sense of the world, but now without that theistic focus. Believing that there were explanations 
for what we have in the world, both in terms of knowledge as well as scientific discoveries that lead to greater knowledge that can be explored, studied, and progress can be made without attributing everything to this creator God as the one who has given us all things. Now, what many historians describe is that in the 18th century, you see a shift in the worldview from a theistic shift to a rationalistic shift. Now, by rationalism, I'm not saying that we're, they were simply using reason, though they were, but Christians before that were using reason as well. Read the theologians like Calvin, you can see. Calvin's not afraid of the use of reason. In fact, God gave us reason and we ought to use it to study his word to understand him better. Human beings are endowed with the ability to reason. But by rationalistic, what I mean is that reason is elevated to be the final judge of all that is true. Instead of God, instead of his scripture, human reason becomes the judge now. And there's an elevation of human reason and an elevation of rationalism now as the way to seek truth. Now, what was going on in the 18th century, I would suggest this is coming from two directions. On one, on one side, one direction is the advancements that were being made in science. From Isaac Newton forward, scientists began to discover, well, there's actually a lot of pattern and consistency in the natural world. That we can perform biological and chemistry experiments now, physical and following physics as well from Newton, that can explain how orderly the world is. Science that can produce now studies that can tell us about why certain things happen in the world. And we don't necessarily have to just simply say, well, God did it. God made it that way. Now we can talk about the patterns within creation and the great leaps in modern science that began in the 18th century. But it wasn't just the advancement of science, but it was the advancement of philosophy at that time as well. European philosophers began to explore rationalism in applying it to various questions that human beings were asking in the 18th century. And I would say that there are two very significant philosophers that moved Europe away from this theistic worldview to a rationalistic worldview. The first was David Hume. His dates are 1711 to 1776. He was a Scottish professor described as a radical skeptic. A radical skeptic. He questioned everything. Everything from can we, can we prove the existence of God or the existence of really anything, either in us or outside of us. His skepticism was so deep. Cause and effect, you can't prove it. God as the originator, you can't prove it. Even man as a creation. These were all equally elusive for David Hume. All you have at the end of the day, Hume argued, is your senses and nothing more. What you can see, hear, smell, touch, that's it. Beyond that, you can't prove things like the spiritual, things beyond what your human senses can receive. Hume set Europe in a 
philosophical direction in which a host of philosophers began to respond to him, began to be very concerned about this skepticism and how radically different it was from the theistic worldview that preceded him. The second philosopher that comes along in this discussion is the great philosopher Immanuel Kant. Kant's dates are 1724 to 1804. And I think you cannot underestimate the impact of Immanuel Kant's philosophy even for us today. I still remember when I was first introduced to the impact of the philosopher Kant on the theology that the church has wrestled with ever since. It was from the writings and teachings of R.C. Sproul. Some of you probably have heard his lectures or read his book where he traces out the history of Western philosophy to show the impact that that has had on Christian theology and his raspy Pittsburgh accent. I can still hear his voice, the Kantian watershed, as he talks about, pointing to the significance of this philosopher that we, I would submit, are still wrestling with today. Kant said that he was reading David Hume and he was awakened from his dogmatic slumber. Hume prodded him, set him off in a direction now to respond to this radical skepticism. And I think there is part of Kant that very much sought to provide a response to David Hume that in some way would still preserve a place for religion. That still would preserve a place for that which we would describe as the spiritual realm. The place of God. And he thought, now this is a significant challenge from Hume. How do I respond to such radical skepticism and still preserve a place for religion? Kant's response then was to describe what he called two realms or two worlds. He called the first the noumena, and the second the phenomena, or the noumenal realm and the phenomenal realm. The noumenal realm, he said, that's the world of God, the world of freedom, the world of immortality. We can describe it this way, the spiritual world. The phenomenal world is the physical world in which human reason and scientific investigation both are free to explore it as much as we can. The noumena is beyond reason. The phenomena is open to the full exploration of human reason and scientific method. Do you see what Kant has done? He said, well, God is over here and the spiritual is over here in this noumenal realm or world. The physical world, the phenomenal world, this is separate over here as well, placing them distinct. And Kant argued that you cannot move from one world to the next. You cannot reason from the phenomenal world and move into the spiritual or noumenal world. The noumenal world is beyond reason, outside of reason, cannot be investigated through scientific means or human reason. You cannot move from one to the other. And he thought... This is the way to protect the spiritual religion from the attacks of skeptics like David Hume. You can't touch it. No. You cannot prove it by human reason, by evidence, by logic. The noumenal world, he thought, would be the answer to David Hume's skepticism. 
Likewise, again, he said, you cannot move from the phenomenal to the noumenal, but there is a kind of, we can describe it this way, an umbilical cord that attaches us to the idea of God in the noumenal. Perhaps we could call this faith. Faith is not something that you can rationally explain. Faith is something beyond reason. Faith is that umbilical cord to the noumenal. But what Kant did was say, okay, but in terms of the phenomenal world, the created world that you and I live in, that we live, move, and have our being, if I could describe it that way for Kant, if you are a scientist, a philosopher, use all your powers to explore it. Understand the physical, noumenal, phenomenal world through the science that is advancing and progressing through the latest philosophical discoveries and ideas based on human reason, Kant said, reason, rationality, yes, in the phenomenal world. Yes, in the physical world. Go ahead. Employ all of that as much as you can. Rationalism then for Kant rules the physical or phenomenal world and is the judge of what is true in that world as well. Follow what Kant has done now. Can't touch the spiritual world. You radical philosophers, skeptics who want to question religion, you can't do that through your use of reason. You can't do that through your use of the senses, David Hume. That's separate. That's boxed off. That's bracket. But in the phenomenal world, go right ahead. Philosophers, it's your playground. Scientists, it's your playground. Go ahead, explore it to your heart's content through your rationalism. Kant believed this was the answer. And I would argue that ever since Kant, much of the Western world has continued to follow with his explanation. What did this do then to Christianity in Europe from that point on. Particularly, we want to focus on what this did to how theologians understood the Bible as a result of Kant's teaching. In Germany, theologians believed that Kant provided the answer to respond to Hume and allow them to appropriate the scientific and philosophical advancements of their day. The question that has to be asked is this, though. Is the Bible in the phenomenal or in the noumenal realm? Is the Bible in the phenomenal or noumenal realm? If you follow Kant, as these German theologians did, of course, it's phenomenal in the physical world. It is a book in the physical world. If so, then it is a book that can be explored, investigated, studied with the latest scientific and historical methods through the use of human reason and you cannot study it to move to the noumenal. It's not noumenal. Kant taught us that. It is in the physical. It is in the phenomenal. Therefore, these so-called theologians then began to explore the Bible as a phenomenal book written by human authors and the end result was to rip out all of what they thought was the so-called supernaturalism of this book. Things that cannot be explained by reason 
That's not part of the phenomenal world. You can't talk about supernatural character of the Bible in the phenomenal world. No. This is a human book that must be subjected to rational tests like any other history book that we have. And the German theologians began then to deconstruct the Bible in this way. It cannot be from God because Kant taught us you cannot cross the noumenal phenomenal divide. Instead, the investigation of what has been called the higher critical study of the Bible began. Why higher critical? Because at the very core, there were critical elements that were challenging then the old ways of knowing and understanding what the Bible is. And these theologians, these biblical studies professors, yielded the higher criticism of the Bible, as we would describe it today, in which the Bible was studied as a purely historical book. They wanted to get at the real history of the Bible and to strip away what was described as the layers of myth that surrounded this ancient Stripping that away to get at the real history would get at the real truth. And it would be done through scientific and rational methods. Methods that once again excluded supernaturalism. Miracles cannot be scientifically or rationally verified. Therefore, they cannot be true. You cannot build your theology on such things as miracles. Well, what was the result of all of this? A couple of examples. Old Testament professors then began to look at the Old Testament and the history of Israel and began to try to get behind it and understand what is the real history of Israel, ripping apart the Old Testament, rearranging its history in particular. This one professor, Wellhausen, trying to understand the proper order of the books of the Pentateuch of the Old Testament based on the developing history of Israel as he reconstructed it. New Testament professors searching for what they called the historical Jesus. Not this Jesus that Christians have been describing, that is this so-called Son of God incarnate, performing miracles, bringing redemption. That's supernaturalism? No. We want to find, as Albert Schweitzer described it, the real historical Jesus and strip away the myths that have been layered upon Christian understandings of who Jesus was. They use the analogy of a corn and you strip away the husk to get at the kernel, the real truth in it. And that husk is all these things that Christians believed in previous generations about the Bible as a miraculous book, about Jesus as the Son of God, about the resurrection as this miraculous event that somehow validates Christianity All of that must be stripped away because it does not stand up to the tests of these rationalist theologians. What is left of Christianity once you do that? Well, the first is that understanding the Bible as an inspired or inerrant book, as we discussed last night from men like John Calvin, that's out the window now. That's how they thought in their pre-enlightened mind. We are enlightened men and women now who have progressed beyond those immature ways of understanding the world and the Bible. 
Well, what is left? One professor, G.E. Lessing, 1729-1781, is taught that the truth of religion or of rational Christianity therefore does not depend on what he called the accidents of history's truth. It does not depend on the accidents of history, but upon the truth of its teaching. Lessing was saying, look, the historical inaccuracies, the things that are myth that don't really tell us what is historically true, those accidents, that doesn't matter. Don't build your religion on whether or not, for instance, Jesus Christ actually rose from the dead. Historically, no, you can't prove that. And historically, that didn't happen even. Instead, just hold to the truth of the teaching regardless of the historical accidents. That you can still hold to the truth of Christianity without having to verify it historically. Lessing gives this example. It's a famous parable of his about the three rings. No, I'm not referring to the Lord of the Rings. You've probably heard enough sermon illustrations on that. Lessing describes how a ring was created that represented the truth of God's love. And that truth, of course, would transform the person who holds that ring to love God more. And he says that this ring was passed to a man, and then this man desired to pass it down to his three sons. But of course, he could not divide that ring. So instead, he had two other rings created and gave one ring to each son, but did not tell any of them which was, in fact, the true ring. Instead, each son was to live as if they had the true ring. And as they pursued that life of devotion, one day they would transcend their differences in love. doesn't matter which ring you have. Others have described what Lessing is describing as three major religions like Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. doesn't matter. Each has a bit of the truth. Each should live as if they have that truth. No one knowing exactly who holds the real truth. What did this leave Lessing and other European Christians with? The truth of Christianity is the truth of love. Not this God who has sent his son to redeem the world from sin and to offer eternal life. No, the truth of Christianity is simply love one another. Love one another. It was, in essence, a ethical religion now. And other religions have similar ethics. Christians need to pursue that same ethic. In the descriptions that we see from theologians, they described how God is the father of us all and we are all brothers and sisters, children of God. Therefore, we must treat each other. Everyone, regardless of your religion, regardless of your ethnicity, regardless of your culture, the ethic of love is the heart of Christianity. And not just Christianity, but all religions. We are really one. The liberal school Now, as this began to grow in Europe in the 18th and 19th century, of course, this became a big concern 
for conservative Christians at the time. As they were seeing some of their ministers and professors going to Germany to be trained under these theologians, coming back to America with this new teaching, it begins to have an impact within the church and within the seminaries that are attached to these denominations, including the Presbyterian Church. Response comes, though, from significant theologians recognizing this challenge, realizing the threat, seeing the danger of what is being taught in this liberal tradition. And it's interesting to see how the response was focused and how they began to articulate still an understanding of Scripture that would not follow Kant's noumenal phenomenal divide. I want to give you an example of a couple of these individuals, and that's why I've titled this B.B. Warfield and J. Gresham Machen, because these two individuals, I believe, in the midst of all of these struggles, in the midst of this onslaught from the German theologians, they attempted to stand the ground. And Warfield spent much of his academic career at Princeton Seminary writing on the doctrine of Scripture, because he recognized this was the challenge of his day. Warfield was so influential, particularly as he wrote on the doctrine of inspiration, that evangelicals today, I think, owe him a great service. That regardless of what seminary you might attend, if you decided to go to seminary, and you, if you chose an evangelical seminary in America, I would guess that in your class on the doctrine of Scripture, not just at Reform seminaries, but evangelical seminaries, you would all have to read some portion of B.B. Warfield's doctrine of inspiration. He was that influential. Warfield provided a response here that evangelicals, I would say, still hold to even today. Well, what did Warfield say about the doctrine of inspiration? B.B. Warfield, this professor at Old Princeton Seminary, his dates... 1851 to 1921, and he joined the faculty at Princeton in 1887. In an article within a Bible encyclopedia, he wrote an essay on the biblical idea of inspiration to articulate what he believed was the proper biblical doctrine. Warfield writes, Inspiration is therefore usually defined as a supernatural influence exerted on the sacred writers by the Spirit of God, by virtue of which their writings are given divine trustworthiness. Let me say that again. Warfield writes, Inspiration is therefore usually defined as a supernatural influence exerted on the sacred writers by the Spirit of God, by virtue of which their writings are given divine trustworthiness. I hope you would hear in Warfield's definition echoes of Calvin and the divines from last night because that was Warfield's tradition and he stood in line. But note also Warfield is here saying that he rejects the Kantian divide. Inspiration is a supernatural influence. Warfield believes that the Bible has been given through supernatural inspiration. And he will not succumb to the influence of Immanuel Kant 
and what is happening in Europe at the time. Well, Warfield goes on to describe then that inspiration means that God has breathed out his word. It is a product of divine inbreathing into the human authors that produces God's very breath, a created breath of God that results in scripture. This is his interpretation of 2 Timothy 3.16 that we read last night. But I want to note here that what Warfield is saying is that scripture is a divine product. Inspiration points to the fact that scripture is a divine product. Once again, rejecting Kant and showing that he believes that this is, again, the word of God. This is why he can say, Inspiration produces a trustworthy scripture. For Warfield then, scripture as this divine book created, as he described it, by divine energy, speaking in every part with divine authority. Not just a divine book from God, but one that is authoritative for Warfield. This, he says, is the fundamental fact which is witnessed by Christ and the sacred writers to whom we owe the New Testament. For Warfield then, inspiration tells us that the Bible is a divine product, that it comes from God, that it's trustworthy, that's authoritative. But at the same time, Warfield recognizes that there are human writers as well. That we need to understand that God used through the work of the Holy Spirit and inspiration, human writers to produce Scripture. So that he will write, Scripture, in other words, are conceived by the writers of the New Testament as through and through God's book, and every part expressive of his mind, but given through men after a fashion which does no violence to their nature as men, and constitutes the book also as men's book, as well as God's in every part, expressive of the mind of its human authors. Warfield recognizes there's dual authorship here. That you have the divine author through inspiration that inbreathes into these human authors, but at the same time there are human authors. And God uses them without violating their nature. And so that the end product is both human and divine. But for Warfield, it's important to note here that inspiration, as he understands it as a dual-authored book, human and divine, is still supernatural. Now, Warfield will go on to write, these human authors were prepared by God. And he would even say that even before they were born, possibly back in their families, generations, God was already preparing For that human author, putting him in a particular family that would have a particular influence, that might provide a particular education, that would give him particular characteristics and personality and shape him and all of these things about the human author God would use to bring that human author to the point of writing scripture. Wardfield says, again as a good Calvinist, this is under God's providence. God's providence watched over these human authors from the time they were born, even before they were born. He providentially governed and preserved them to the point 
in which they were called to write Holy Scripture. Warfield says this is under the providence of God. But some might say, and some did to Warfield, well, if it's under the providence of God, then why do you make such a big point of inspiration? Isn't it the case that everything is under God's providence? That everything that is produced in this world is under God's providence. Isn't that what you Calvinists believe? So what's the big deal of inspiration if all things happen under God's providence? Let me give you an example of what Warfield said. I'll take an example from my own life. In my short career at Westminster, I have written one book. It's my book. I'm the only author. It's a product of my doctoral dissertation, and it is a book on 17th century eschatology or 17th century Puritan views of the end times. And someone could ask me, Jeff, why did you write this book? What interests you about it? And you could go back in my history as a Christian, in which I was raised in a Southern Baptist dispensational church, in which I grew up very much being taught dispensationalism and very much being taught that I was waiting for the rapture. And I remember watching movies and hearing lectures about how at any moment Christ could return and rapture us and there will be a seven-year tribulation and the figure of the Antichrist would come and persecute those who remained and that there would be this great millennium in the end. And I remember being very frightened at times as a child growing up in the church, hearing about this tribulation coming and worrying whether or not I would be raptured or not. And it had a profound impact on my spiritual growth from that early age to the point that when I went to seminary, eschatology, the study of the end times, was always something very, very interesting to me. And as I wrestled through the book of Revelation with my professors at Westminster, California, I actually made a shift in my eschatology, moving from a dispensational premillennial position to an amillennial position. And that had a profound impact on my spiritual life as well to leave the church that I had grown up in, to move in terms of my theology. It impacted me. It impacted my family. As a result of that, the interest in eschatology continued to grow. And as I thought about my doctoral studies at the time, I thought, well, this is a wonderful way to merge my interest in history with my interest in eschatology, so I'll study the history of eschatology. And I set out to write that dissertation that ultimately was published as a book. Now, one could say, Jeff, is it not the case that God providentially oversaw your life to go through those spiritual struggles, to be raised in that church, to wrestle with those questions, to be brought to Westminster Seminary, to be challenged with a different interpretation, to move from that interpretation and lead you to doctoral studies to write about this? Is that not all under the governing of God in his providence to watch over me and guide and lead through all those years? As a Calvinist, I would say absolutely that was all under God's providence. But here's the difference. I would never submit to you that my book is true at every point, is completely trustworthy, and should be authoritative. See the difference. My book has been reviewed by other authors, other scholars, who have absolutely disagreed with some of the things I wrote there. In fact, one senior scholar pointed out a historical error that I admit that I got wrong in my book. 
There's an error there. And I would never claim that I have the last word on this subject and that it should be held up in absolute authority. Produced under God's providence, yes. Inspired, absolutely not. Absolutely not. This is the difference that Warfield points out when he writes, Providence is guidance, and guidance can only bring one so far on his own power. If heights are to be scaled above man's native power to achieve, then something more than guidance, however effective, is necessary. This is the reason for the superinduction at the end of the long process of the production of Scripture of the additional divine operation we call technically inspiration. By it, the Spirit of God, flowing confluently in with the providentially and graciously determined work of man, spontaneously producing under the divine direction the writings appointed to them, which gives the product a divine quality unattainable by human powers alone. Thus these books become not merely the word of godly men, but the immediate word of God himself. Catch what Warfield is saying here. I can sum it up. Warfield is saying that through inspiration, something superhuman has been produced. Something that these human authors could have never produced on their own. What is it? It is a word of God. It is a word of God that is without error, that is true, trustworthy, and authoritative. Warfield says this is why we must insist on the doctrine of inspiration. You cannot talk about mere providence alone. You must understand the doctrine of inspiration, particularly in his context, in which the German higher critical scholars have said no such thing. Kant won't allow it. Warfield insists upon it and insists then that the doctrine of inspiration then is important for our understanding of an inerrant and inspired Bible. In the midst of all of this debate and discussion, Warfield gives us, I believe, a very clear biblical doctrine that responds to Kant and those who would follow after him. But in Warfield's lifetime at Princeton Seminary and within the Presbyterian Church, these battles raged on. And in many cases, we began to see that Princeton Seminary and the Presbyterian Church was being torn asunder. J. Gresham Machen, who would join the faculty at Princeton Seminary first as a New Testament professor, records that at Warfield's funeral on February 19, 1921, he writes, It seemed to me that old Princeton, a great institution it was, died when Dr. Warfield was carried out. Machen was already sensing the tide is turning in church. Already sensing that his own institution, his beloved Princeton Seminary, was feeling the effects of this sea change within the church. And as a result of that, Machen himself would enter these debates, both in the church as well as in the seminary. 
J. Gresham Machen's dates are 1881 Machen is thrusted from his position at the seminary as well as in the church into these battles that we described between ministers like Harry Emerson Fosdick and Clarence McCartney. Machen would see that this is the great issue of his day. Biblical authority, being challenged by what is coming from Europe, seeing his former professors like Warfield standing, holding the ground, but realizing that they are starting to be pushed back. 1923, Machen drops a bombshell in the midst of this battle. He produced a book entitled Christianity and Liberalism. And this book thrusted Machen into the center of this battle, into the center of this debate, as many would point to that book as giving us a very clear description of what this battle is about and what is at stake. In his book, Machen set out a profound thesis that set the terms, again, for what was at stake in this battle. Machen wrote, Modern liberalism must be criticized on the ground that it is unchristian. Despite the liberal use of traditional phraseology, modern liberalism not only is a different religion from Christianity, but belongs in a totally different class of religions. You see, this was all going on in the church. And what you had people debating, saying, no, we're Christians, but we want to have more flexibility in how we interpret certain doctrines. We want to have more latitude and how we understand things like the virgin birth and the inspiration of Scripture. Conservative Christians in the church saying, no, that's not biblical, that's not according to what we believe, but this is an in-house church debate. Machen said, no, it is not. Liberalism is not even Christianity. This is not an in-house debate between various Christians who disagree on interpretation. Machen said, liberalism is not Christian at all. It is a different religion. Imagine then the impact of that in the church. Individuals were saying, now we're just trying to find middle ground. As Christians together, Machen has basically said, there is no middle ground. You must choose Christianity or liberalism. Machen wrote, modern liberalism must be criticized, again, on the ground that it is unchristian. And this bold claim was a clarion call to the church that there can be no compromise with liberal theology. Again, because it was a completely separate religion. In that book, Machen tackles the problems posed by Lessing and others. Can there be the truth and experience of Christianity without the historical facts of Christianity recorded in the Bible? Can you have confidence, in other words, in the truth of Christianity when that truth is communicated through a fallible and errant Bible? Machen responded, 
Before the full authority of the Bible can be established, therefore, it is necessary to add to the Christian doctrine of revelation the doctrine of inspiration. Again, pointing back to his professor, Warfield. Which means that the Bible is not only an account of important things, but the account itself is true. The writers, having been so preserved from error, that despite a full maintenance of their habits of thought and expression, the resulting books in the resulting books are to be followed as the infallible rule of faith and practice. Again, Machen is echoing Warfield here. The doctrine of inspiration, that is important. That must be preserved because it preserves these authors from error that produces for us an infallible scripture. Machen believed that plenary or full inspiration supposes that the Holy Spirit so informed the minds of the biblical writers that they were kept from falling into errors that mar all other books. This book is completely unique. This book is completely different because this book is inspired and the result is that there are no errors in this inspired Word of God. Machen set out these terms clearly in his book, Christianity and Liberalism. He goes on further to write then that the authority of this scripture therefore likewise rests on it being without error inspired because it is the word of God. Machen says it is no wonder then that liberalism is a totally different religion from Christianity for the foundation is different. Christianity is founded upon the Bible. It bases upon the Bible both its thinking and its life. Liberalism, on the other hand, is founded upon the shifting emotions of sinful men. Shifting emotions of sinful men. But this story for Machen does not have a happy ending. In the 1920s, Machen would see that toleration would win the day in the church. That those who held to more liberal beliefs would not be disciplined within the church. That they would be allowed to remain. And Machen began to see then that the tide had shifted and the result was the loss of his own denomination. But not just his denomination. Machen would likewise see the shifts and impact on his own beloved seminary, Princeton Seminary. As the denomination decided to change the makeup and shape of the board that governed Princeton Seminary, members, new members were included onto that board, members who were much more tolerant of these new liberal interpretations. J. Gresham Machen saw that that was then the end of Princeton Seminary, believing that at that point, that kind of toleration would prove to be the death of his seminary. As a result, he and a number of the other professors left Princeton Seminary and founded Westminster Theological Seminary, believing that this new seminary would carry on 
the tradition of old Princeton, that would still hold faithfully to what Warfield talked about the doctrine and about the doctrine of inspiration. Machen wanted to carry on that commitment in this new seminary. By the grace of God, Westminster Seminary is celebrating its 80th anniversary. And I hope that you would see by evidence of what Dr. Garner and what I have been speaking to you about that we still believe that what Warfield and Machen taught is important for us today. And even more so that you would see that Westminster continues to maintain that position on Scripture and on the doctrine of, in, of inspiration. As I said last night, today are, we are seeing some of the same challenges today. In many ways, as a historian, I'm looking back at this period of the 19th and early 20th century, and we're beginning to see some of the same arguments and the same approaches that were coming from the liberals of that time. Scripture is correct. There is nothing new under the sun. If that's the case, then it keeps people like me in business who study church history, who continue to call us back to remember the past and to remember how individuals responded to what was being challenged at their time as well as ours. As I said last night, there are many now today who are approaching the Bible as a human book throwing out the doctrine of inerrancy because human books have errors, but that's okay. This is what God intended to give us, a divinely inspired, errant Bible. But if you follow Calvin and the divines, if you follow Warfield and J. Gresham Machen, allowing the Bible to have errors revises how we understand the doctrine of inspiration and cuts, undercuts, the authority of Scripture itself. It reduces to the Bible then to the mere words of human men. And it pushes back the notion that this is a divine book that is the very word of God. On one hand, I would say we must have the same boldness that Warfield and Machen exemplified. A willingness to recognize this error and oppose it within our church and within our institutions. A willingness also to respond in our work, whether in the church or in the context of the seminary. I think many of us at Westminster have decided that for the next few years we will dedicate ourselves, particularly in our academic writing, to respond to what is coming out in this so-called new scholarship. I like how J.I. Packard describes the work of the theologian. We're like the sewer maintenance crew <laughs> that has to watch what is going in and out of the church. And it's an important calling, and I do ask that you would pray for us in this way. Finally, I would say that we need to stand, and we can stand with full confidence in the Bible today, as it was for Machen, as it was for Warfield. Again, this word of God that is truth and trustworthy. As those in the past history of the church have taught us, this is not a battle that is in vain. Some would look at Machen and say, he lost. He gave up what was in the church and what was at Princeton. But we all know that in this world, 
seeking earthly things, that's not our reward. Beautiful campuses, big ornate churches, that is not our reward in this world. We're called to be faithful, faithful to God, faithful to our Lord, and recognize that our reward is in heaven. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you again for your precious word, for what it teaches us, for what it gives us, Father, the way to salvation itself, to be reconciled with you, to know that we are united to Jesus Christ and that we have now an eternal life and reward because of Christ. Father, give us strength. Give us the courage to be faithful even now. To know that it is important to protect your church. To know that it's important to protect your honor. To bring you glory first. And to know, Father, that we are your servants and your children. Father, I pray that you would bless each one of us today. Again, that you would bless the churches that are represented here at this conference and others that may not have come. That your word would be the center of all that we say and do for your glory again and not our own. We thank you and pray this in and through Jesus Christ. Amen.